I read it to my baby here. What did you think of the book? <laughs> hey, thank you for joining the Escape With Me book club. Escape with me, Sam Reiner. And me, Hannah Rossell. Into our most recent read. Come with us as we evade reality and go into detail about a new book. We'll be covering the book from beginning to end, so remember, there will be spoilers. Today we are going to... Essex, England. Published in October 1920, The Mysterious Affair at Styles is the debut novel of the Queen of Mystery, Agatha Christie. For the first time, we are introduced to the funny little man, Hercule Poirot, and many of the Christieisms that we know and love today were forged in this book. Now, it's time to look into the book that launched almost a hundred more. A hundred? Yeah, she wrote 80 books. 66 of them were mysteries, and then 14 of them were short story compilations. I don't have enough ideas for just one book. (laughs) And she wrote them all. So now that we're doing them kind of in order, I've decided to actually research and be useful to our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) At this point in her life, Agatha Christie is married to her first husband. She married him in 1914. So right at the end of the war. She and I think it's her older sister were talking one day and writing apparently runs in the family because her mother was a writer. Her sister was a writer. She was a writer. Nothing published. In fact, Agatha Christie says later that the novel she wrote before this one, she just had absolute disdain for. She thought it was terrible. Oh, gosh. She hated it. And she had written a bunch of short stories and stuff like that when her sister dared her to write a detective novel and Agatha thought about it and she's like well I work at a dispensary at a hospital and so I know a lot about poisons and she looked around her town and noticed a huge influx of Belgian refugees and she was like I can work with that too so she started writing a book and so she began writing it in 1916 set the book in 1917 so the year later which I'm a little bit curious about I've never thought about them having time periods other the 1920s but like she had dedicated this is set in this and that's kind of weird for me to think about because I'm like oh it's all in the homogenous past yeah the blur that is 1920 so she wrote this book and she felt strongly about it that she decided to shop her around and try to find a publisher and like any young person trying to get into publishing today too she shopped around people kept turning her down and so she finally found one and they made her signed a contract and like everybody starting out it's a predatory contract because you don't know she was just excited to be paid for doing books so she signed a six book deal with these people so she had to write six books for them oh my gosh and she would get 10% after 2,000 books sold in the United Kingdom I don't know what her contract was when they started releasing these in America but that was her UK contract so she was just really excited about it she was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to live this life as an author. At this point, she started writing the book in 1916. She had her only child in 1919. And so she had a kid now. And then her book was published in 1920. And after 2,000 copies is wild. And that isn't as bad. I mean, she definitely could have been making more considering how good her books were and how well they sold. But it was the six book contract that ended up biting her. That's rough. And we'll talk about that more once we get to the end of the six books. But it took so long for her book to get published. She was almost done with the second book by the time it came out. And she has some affections for this book, obviously, for 
a lot of reasons, but she later went on to name her own house. Like when she had the money to have a house proper, she named it Styles. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. So obviously she has some love for this book. She went on to later in her life hating Perot. <gasps> but for now, it's great. She joins the list of so many other artists who end up hating their art. Same with Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. But unlike Doyle, she was like, no, he stays dead. <laughs> and Doyle was like, you know what sounds good? Getting paid. So Sherlock <laughs> comes back alive. She was just over with it. But yeah, just like a lot of musicians who hate a song. By the end, by 30-something, like, I don't want to say 32 books. 32 books later. That's understandable. Yeah, she was like, no. So that's the Agatha Christie historical background we have. Pretty cool. All of this started from a dare, so we should all take a moment and thank Margaret Miller her sister for randomly daring her sister write a detective story. That is a very sister thing to do. I love it. And like I said, I've looked everywhere to see if there was anything published by her or her mom, but I didn't find it. So I guess it was more of a hobby writing, but yeah, it did the stuff. And so we begin. So for this book, neither of us has read this book. Nope. So this is a first for me, not super first for the podcast, but this book is a first for me. So age level, this is definitely adult. Oh yeah, for sure. A little bit default. This is actually probably one of the tamer, possibly the tamest book she's ever written because I mean it was her first. Makes sense. Yeah. A lot of these books anyone younger than an adult could read. But you know default. She was not writing for children. Content warnings. Super easy. Murder. Yep. Oh no. There is racism though. I don't think any of these books are not guilty in some way or another. It's just a sign of the time. That's a bad thing to say but also it was the early 1900s. It was was pretty casually racist. Yeah. Honestly, even some of the stuff written in the like, 60s and 80s, more contemporary stuff has as much or more racism in it. Yeah. It is something to think about. Like, just know, I don't think it will give anybody flashbacks or harm anybody. But if you're just like, I don't want to support anything with racism, here we be. Also, it has some language, but a PG-13 movie's amount of language. Yes. So judge a book by its cover. It was a Hercule mystery. It's gonna be about murder and it's at a place called Styles. It's a big house. I was expecting something almost like Clue-esque, like the movie. Ooh. Based on the cover I had. Which one did you have? Because there is like, I want to say seven covers now. Ooh, dang. I had the one that has the house in the background and trees and Hercule in the foreground. That's a good cover. It's the audible one. I like it. The one I've seen the most of is the one that was just a bowler hat and then a mustache because, you know, Hercule. I'm trying to think. I had the Kindle one and and that's the one that updates. I also knew it was going to be a poisoning because there was a bottle that says a mysterious affair at Styles, And then it had a skull and crossbones. And at the bottom it says the first Hercule Perot mystery. So there you go. I also knew it was going to be a poisoning. I was just like, hmm, clue? Clue would be interesting. But let's talk about the making of Hercule Perot a little bit more because we mentioned briefly he was inspired by the influx of Belgian refugees during the Great War. This was after World War One, before World War Two. Mm-hmm. Along with that, so a couple of things that I find interesting. So he is a retired Belgian police detective and when he came to England as a refugee. And so most people estimate that during this book he was at least 60 
55 years old. I don't know how old I imagined him to be, but I didn't imagine him in his 60s. I put him in his 40s for some reason. That sounds about right. But that's at the height of your career, basically. I was thinking late 40s, early 50s. I wouldn't have ever guessed 60s. And so that's kind of a fun fact about him. And because she doesn't do, you know how some books do age freezes, so their detective never gets any older. Yes. No, he ages. And throughout the book series, the only time his description from the first book is ever changed in any sort of way is when it's to indicate aging. Interesting. I guess another the three I've read didn't pick up on that. And so he doesn't die until the 70s. And so that puts him at like 120 years old when he died. <laughs> okay. My goodness. So that's Hercule Poirot. He's gonna live for a long time, guys. It's great. And even then, people are like, if only he lived longer. <laughs> Negative Christmas is like, if only I killed him sooner. Yeah. I kind of love her love hate relationship with everything yes because to answer a question we had had in a previous episode we had talked about how our feelings of the movies and the comments were like no she didn't like them and i went on to look at her exact quotes and not all of the movies was she really explicit about but there were some movies where she's like i'm glad that didn't work i'm glad that failed (laughs) apparently there was a couple of movies where they replaced hercule with miss marple as the main character oh weird and she's like it gladdened my heart that those failed don't mix those characters up no they both are awesome but i'm a little partial to the belgian man so another interesting thing because you texted this to me when we were reading the book but you mentioned how hercule is kind of romantic yes i was like he's just a big romantic softy he really is and i find it interesting that he's very romantic about other people's love life but he never has a love interest of his own Mm-hmm. Here's an example. Nancy Drew has Ned Nickerson. Yes. And even later on, detectives always have a love interest. But he never has a proper love interest like that. And it's because Agatha thinks love interests in detective novels are boring. <laughs> boring? Straight up, she finds them the dullest character in the book. I guess because you can't really spend too much time developing that character unless you want to take away from the mystery. You just get kind of stagnant. And as someone who side eyes romance books sometimes I understand yeah sometimes the love interest is the least interesting and I mean you love them because they're the love interest but if you really think about it they're kind of boring that's why he never has that so she has subplots about love and then Hercule's always like oh I would never want to hurt the lady mm-hmm. but yeah she just hates love interest in detective novels so extra looking at you death on the Nile Hollywood why 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 the modern one the 20 2021 one that probably killed the entire revival. I mean, if another one comes out, I will be shocked. I don't know how it did, but it was bad. It was so bad. It's so bad. Oh, gosh. He's not a World War One veteran. He didn't have a nurse love. He doesn't have a scar on his face. That's why he has a mustache. No, he has a mustache because he wants a mustache. He's a refugee. There's nothing wrong with that. He just wants to be fancy. He just wants to be fancy. Anyway... So many thoughts. Oh, but the ending also made me mad. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk about the book itself. Yes. So this is a fun one. I think this is the first one you've read that's a first person. 
I guess. The other two I made you read were third person. Yeah, that did throw me off for a little bit that I was in first person. It took me a couple chapters of listening to be like, oh yeah, right. Yeah, so we have a narrator in this book, Hastings, who's going to stick around for a little bit. Not too long, but for a little bit. He was actually in the army, so there is a veteran. He was injured, and so he's sent back to England, and he ran into his old friend, John Cavendish. What a name. And Cavendish was like, hey, it's the 1920s England, and we still just spend months at each other's houses, so why don't you come on down? So to kind of get into the murder, I thought Alfred was going to die from the beginning. Oh, you thought they were going to kill Alfred? <laughs> there was trouble in paradise with his stepmom's marriage, and I thought Alfred was going to die. Fair enough. And they were going to think it was John. But no, it was his stepmother, and they still think it's John. Either way, John's in trouble. John is in trouble. Sorry, John. And also there's this really weird subplot where Hastings has a thing for John's wife. Yeah, that was really strange. Hastings. And then also the girl, oh, what's her name? Cynthia. Cynthia? What is happening in this house? I mean, he's straight up proposes to her while she's crying and she just laughs in his face. I'm like, that had to feel real bad. Yeah, and I also thought that maybe Lawrence was into Cynthia. There's something in the water here that people just need to figure out. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so we have the main people. So Hastings is a narrator, but he's never part of the mystery. So that's kind of why I prefer the third person ones, because I'm like, I don't care that you don't understand what Perot is talking about Hastings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just let me get to the part where he explains himself. Shush. But he's a fine narrator. Like I said, he's a part of it, but he's not a part of it because he's flirting with the wife and then kind of with Cynthia and then feels weird about Lawrence. He feels some type of way about everybody. He had a lot of opinions. Yes. I don't know if I wanted or cared about most of them, but he was going to share them. Yeah. That's why I'm not sad that in a couple books, he's not going to be there. Maybe he just learns to keep his thoughts to himself. Yeah, this definitely wasn't a great Gatsby style where having a third person gave you another dimension to the story. So he's whatever. Anyway, he's sitting in the corner being upset that Hercule isn't telling him what he's thinking. So next we have John Cavendish, who we mentioned earlier, who is the main suspect for the police. Then we have Emily Cavendish Inglethorpe, who is, okay, so this is complicated. She married John and Lawrence's dad and became the stepmom. And then as the dad died, but she stayed as a motherly figure to them. And so recently she's gotten married again to Alfred Inglethorpe, who is the guy I thought would be the dead one, but is not. John doesn't like this situation. He thinks Alfred married her for her money and was trying to redo the will. He's 20 years younger than her and claims to be the second cousin of the servant that runs the household. And he's just a suspicious guy. And so next we have Lawrence, who is John's younger brother. And okay, both of these boys, something went wrong. So John was a barrister, but then quit and is just a country squire now. And then Lawrence was a doctor, and then he quit to be an unproductive writer. What great life choices. Good thing their parents are rich. Yes, a very good thing. So then we have Evelyn 
Alan or Evie Howard, who is the servant I mentioned, who is the cousin of Alfred. So this is all the people living in the one house. Mary Cavendish is John's wife, who is flirting with Hastings. And she is the reason I now know what Tawny Eyes is. Yeah, I had to look that up and I was like, oh. It's a very, very pretty kind of like tiger eye amber. They are very pretty. I wish more people would use that color in books. But she's also half English, half Russian, and then that never comes up again. I was like, no. We're just going to mention that one time and then never again. They have such deep backstories. They do. And it's only mentioned a couple times and you're like, but I want to know more. So they're really fleshed out, even though it never becomes relevant ever again. Which is another thing. To answer one of your questions from a previous episode, how does she come up with these character descriptions? She says it's important to come up with your own characters. That you can look at someone on a trolley and that can be your starting point, but you have to make the entire description yourself. And so I definitely think she does that. She really does. I mean, everyone is very easily imaginable. It's not like all your characters look the same. Yeah. Evelyn Howard. 40s, blue eyes, pleasant looking, deep voice, large and square body. Mm-hmm. Alfred Inglethorpe. 50s, long black beard, deep voice, wooden hand, glasses. Which I now think wooden hand was not literal. <laughs> I think that was figurative because that never came up again. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. Yeah, it never mentioned. I wonder what she meant by that. I can't remember. Was it like a handshake or something? Or did someone just mention he had a wooden hand? I cannot remember. I feel like that should have been played up when they were trying to make him look guilty. But anyway, very detailed descriptions. And like the doctor, he's a Polish Jew who is German by birth. And staying in the village after having a nervous breakdown. I want to know all the things. He was an interesting character. Uh, yeah. So that's Dr. Bairston? Stein? Bairston. You had the audiobook. Come on, you gotta help me out. Oh gosh, it's been so long since I've listened to it. Sounds right. I feel like that's how they said it. Bairston. B-A-U-E-R-S-T-E-I-N. Bauerstein. Bauerstein. That's how the audiobook narrator was saying it. Uh, I never would have gone there myself. I don't know German. I just need you to spell it. And then I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> so he's suspicious because he's running around with Mary Cavendish, the wife of John. Once again, something in the water, man. He's just a suspicious little character. And then the last person in this house is Cynthia Murdoch. She has nothing to do with anything. She's become Mrs. Cavendish's protege for some reason because she was a daughter of a schoolmate and then Cynthia was orphaned and Mrs. Cavendish was like, you know what sounds good? Come live with me! Which was really nice of her and so I do appreciate that so she's not related to anything really but she lives in the house and so of course she's suspicious she works for the red cross she also works at a dispensary so i wonder if agatha christie was like i worked at a dispensary let's have a character who works at the dispensary so there's all of these people in this house and then you throw in hastings for a week or two and then by happenstance hastings runs into an old friend from the war and there we meet the one and only funny little man with an egg-shaped head and a big mustache luxurious as some may say hercule poirot who just happens to be in the town because apparently Mrs. Inglethorpe now, but Emily was super generous and is just putting up these seven refugees in a house that she owns or is leasing or something. I guess, yeah. It must be a really big house. 
The way that it sounded, it really isn't. It's just sounded like a boarding house, kind of. I can see that. Because Hastings visits a couple times and it mentions his room. Mm-hmm. And it briefly describes it. So we have all the characters in the world. So many. And then Emily is dead. There's a lot of activities that happen. Not a lot of them are super important. I feel like the 17th is more important than the 16th. Obviously, that's the day before she was murdered. So there's Emily hates her cousin. Not Emily. Evie. Evie hates Alfred. Goodness, too many E's. Anyway, hates him. Is always talking bad about him. And so much to the fact that apparently... Evie just laid it all out and called him terrible and told Emily to divorce him and Emily fired her. And she had been supposedly the one and only friend she'd had in the world. Yes. Because she warns Hastings that now that she's gone, everyone else here is just vultures and they're in to get her money and blah, 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 blah. Which, knowing the ending, is actually rather sad. Yeah. And a lot of projection. Oh yeah, so much. Lots of playing tennis randomly. Yes. A lot of little things. There's a charity event Hastings helping out with because Emily does a lot of charity work. Keeping busy and whatnot. But afterwards, Emily's overtired. She's better by the afternoon. Takes Lawrence and Hastings out to lunch, then drops him off with Cynthia. Cynthia shows him around the dispensary. There's a point where Lawrence is alone in the dispensary, which becomes suspicious later. Hastings gets stamps, and that's when he runs into Poirot. That's right. And Poirot, I guess, is living in a house with a bunch of other Belgian refugees. A lot of people. It's a lot of people in a little house. So they get back to the house, and Emily's upset, but they won't say why. So Hastings goes to get his racket because all of the tennis. And Mary seems obsessed as well. So it's strange. And she's claiming she didn't go with the doctor, even though everybody's been seeing her go off to the doctor. And then after that, being like, oh, Mary, you're upset, blah, blah, blah. Mary goes and has an encounter with Emily. And he hears that Emily won't show Mary something. And Mary thinks it's, it's related to shielding him. Quote him, end quote. Mm-hmm. Who's him? He was either her husband or Alfred, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't think, unless she has something really good on that doctor friend. Yeah. I couldn't see Mary caring about Lawrence. No. As sad as that is. So, after dinner, so here's the big thing. She goes up to her bedroom after dinner, and she wants Mary to bring her coffee to her. Mary doesn't want to deliver it, though, so she agrees to pour and Cynthia deliver it. But Alfred is the one who ends up actually pouring it and taking it to her. When Alfred leaves the room, Lawrence follows him. Suddenly, the doctor shows up, as does John, and the doctor is completely covered in mug, and he comes into the one room that everybody else is in, and he claims he was trying to reach a fern and ended up in a muddy pond. That's very strange. Likely story. A fern, of all things? Okay, dude. Yeah. Then at this point, Cynthia is asked to bring something to Emily, so she goes to bring something. Hastings and John go with her and note the coffee hadn't been drunk yet. This is the point where I was like, okay, maybe Alfred isn't the victim. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, this sounds like you're paying a lot of attention to Emily. Although there are points throughout the book where I was like, are we going to have a double murder on our hands? Yeah. So doctor stayed super late talking to people and then Alfred 
Alfred walked back with him to the town. So at that point, the only person who hadn't been out of the room was Mary. Mm-hmm. So then something goes very, very wrong. Because in the middle of the night, near the morning, Hastings is awakened by Lawrence and says there's something wrong with Emily. And so they head that way and John and several servants are already at the door. It's bolted shut from the inside. They try to going in through Alfred's room because there's a door that way, which there's a door on either side to the other bedrooms. And I think that's dumb. It's a very interesting setup. That's just asking for people to come into your room. But I also feel the same way about join hotel rooms. Yeah. It's good for very specific situations, but if you don't have those very specific situations, it's kind of creepy. That's a little sketchy. They try to get in through Alfred's room, but it's bolted from the inside. Also, Alfred's missing. And so they try to go through Cynthia's room, but it's also bolted. Mary is trying to wake up Cynthia, who's apparently, quote, a deep sleeper, which I knew she had been drugged then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I also feel like you would wake up if you heard a table crashing and doors being busted down. Yeah. So they end up breaking down the door and they find her convulsing and a table has been flipped over and that's the first things they notice in the room. So she calms down a little bit, but then she starts up again and Lawrence is very pale and looking toward the fireplace. The doctor shows up suddenly and Imbrant says, Alfred. Yep. And then is kind of cut off and she dies. So another doctor shows up, Wilkins. He apparently is Emily's doctor, the proper doctor, because the other guy that I call doctor is just there for mental health reasons. He is not there to work. Supposedly. So Wilkins and the doctor, I'm just going to call him doctor because I can't pronounce his last name. <laughs> That's fair. So they talk in the locked room for a little while. And Hastings is convinced his points and Mm-hmm. And then Mary starts reacting really dramatically before being asked to be left alone. And then she goes off. <laughs> so the doctors come back and say they want to do a postmortem of the body. Not surprising. And at this point, that's all the super relevant details of what happened and what Hastings noticed. And so at this point, he convinces John that Perot has to investigate. There's no other way they can do this. Perot has to investigate. And Lawrence is like, no, because it wasn't a poisoning. So we don't need to do it. It's really out of character. Yeah, it's trying to save face for the family, I guess. They don't want all the publicity. That's what he thinks at first. I mean, there's a reason later on that we find out. Yeah, but that's what initially he's like, well, maybe the publicity. Yeah, so Lawrence, because he's a shy, quiet, brooding type, and then all of a sudden he's, it's not poisoning, da 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 And they're like, okay, that's weird. Yeah. So Alfred claims that he was staying in town that night, and that's why he was missing. Because he forgot the key. Yeah, and so Hastings tells all of this to Perot. And so Perot's on the case now. In a way, that's a lot to happen before the investigation because you get kind of the feeling you have several different scenes of, oh, Mary snuck off with the doctor and you kind of get to know each of the individual characters. But it's not at all like Death of the Nile. Well, most of the book is background. <laughs> I think it's like four chapters before Perot begins to investigate. That's not bad. That's really not. You have an okay feel for the characters. <laughs> you get more of a feel as time goes on. Yes. So Perot's suspicious because everyone's like, oh, the coffee was poisoned. Clearly it was the coffee. And Perot's like, hmm. Obviously. Then why did the poison react nine hours later? Huh, that's weird. So he goes in and he notices a bunch of things across the room that no one else noticed, of course. Yep. There's green threads. He's interested in key to the writing test. There's a saucepan with liquids of cocoa and rum. And the overturned table with a coffee cup that is just completely smashed to powder. Yeah. How hard did you have to step on that to smash it? Yeah, it wasn't just, oh, it fell over. It was smashed. Definitely intentional smashing. Yeah. 
And so he looks through her dispatch case, which I think is just a briefcase. Yeah. It was purple, though. Yeah. Let me double check here. Yeah, a container for dispatches, especially for official state or... So, yeah. Fancy briefcase. No, it's not a briefcase. It's a box. It's a wooden box. Oh, okay. I see. I didn't look it up. I just was like, okay, the dispatch case. Going with it. Yeah, I thought it was a briefcase. It is a box. Okay. Learn something new every day. Though some of these look like bags. Huh. I don't know. From what I understood, it was a bag. It's a purple bag. Mm-hmm. But apparently some of these are... It's anything that would keep stuff in. So probably a leather bag kind of thing. Yeah. No, it has a key to it, so it's probably a box. I don't know. I am now so confused. <laughs> I mean, you can lock a bag. I don't know. Not something where we use today, so... No, and it also might be a UK thing. But anyway, there's a case filled with documents, and Perot doesn't pay attention to him, but he keeps the key anyway. And apparently the key was in the lock, and he thought that was weird. He's interested in the stain in the carpet. Yeah. There's candle grease on the carpet, which is apparently what Lawrence was staring at near the fireplace. Very convenient. Which is weird, because the grease is white, and Lawrence's candle was pink. Convenient candle colors. (laughs) And Perot goes through the fireplace and finds a scrap of a will that was burned. Suspicious. Also, he's impressed with the flower beds in the back. Oh, yeah, I remember him making a big deal out of them. Yeah, and Hastings is like, what is your problem and then it became important later because of course it did so the green threads are weird because they're stuck in the door in between cynthia's room and emily's room and nobody seems to own anything dark green and wasn't the door locked from the inside yeah it was also bolted and so they eventually find out that actually it was a piece of clothing from the attic because they store old clothing there oh yeah they play dress-up games yes which is interesting yeah and that's where the racing came in was during the dress up game yeah I didn't write it down but they mentioned that they play dress up and I just wrote cue casual 1910s racism yeah it was definitely in the costumes though so people were dressing up as other cultures and being very racially insensitive about it I mean wasn't blackface mentioned yes he was either blackface or brownface I think one of them dressed up as an Indian yeah either way I was like oh okay and moving on and I think at that time yeah india didn't get its independence from british rule since 1947 so that's also extra icky yeah well that poor audiobook narrator having to read that yeah i mean it just is what it is at that point Mm -hmm. so i think the major things are the stains in the carpet and then the will because apparently emily changed her will all the time and will do it herself and type it up which is interesting would she just get pissed off at someone be like that's it you're not in my will anymore That's exactly what she would do, which I think is how you make some enemies, Emily. Tell me you're petty without telling me you're petty. Yeah, it's that trope of, oh, she's so generous and does all her time to charity, but actually in real life as a person, not great. It's not very kind. It's more like getting that. So she looks really important and very kind and generous, but actually I think it's more about control. Yeah, for sure. Because the way she talks about how she treats Cynthia, she took her in, but she still makes it known and make sure Cynthia knows that she's still, I guess, in a sense, like beneath her. She owes her. Cynthia owes Emily and she just really likes control. And it was the 1917 
is when this book take place. And there weren't that many ways for women to do it. And so she found the ways to do it through charity and having people live in her house and wanting her money from her will that she would change constantly. Yeah, I mean, that is the ultimate way to get control. And that's the thing. She had a will and she was like, you know what? I'm going to add Alfred into the will. And so she types it up and has Alfred in it. And she has the two gardeners come in and sign as witness. And then she's like, you know what? I actually decide I hate Alfred. And she burns the will. Granted, she had good reason to hate Alfred. But yeah, so there are two wills. And it's really confusing because she did this. Because they're like, well, what's in the will? Who did they cut out? And so they find blotting paper and they're like, oh, well, she wanted to add Alfred to the will. So who burned it? Oh, well, clearly it's someone not wanting Alfred in the will. And so they think it's John and no, Emily burned it and made it as complicated as possible. Yeah, it was mind spinning. So that's a huge kerfuffle. And then we have the coffee cup because they're all convinced the poison was in the coffee. Yes. But it wasn't. But then they're all like, but it's a fast acting poison. Why would it take this long to take effect? Nine hours later. And so they're all centered around the coffee cup and then there's a missing coffee cup and they're freaking out about it. And then there's the crushed coffee cup when they're like, oh, that's the one she drank, but we can't test what was in it. And come to find out at some point, Perot is like, hey, if you want to feel better, Lawrence, you should find the missing coffee cup. And Lawrence is like, that's weird. But later he finds the missing coffee cup. Yeah. And it's like a message passed through Hastings and he's like, hey, Poro wanted me to tell you to look for the missing coffee cup. And he's just like, okay, I guess. Yeah. So he finds it and you come to find out Lawrence is the one who smashed the coffee cup and he was also freaking out about the grease and being like, oh, it's not poison because he thought Cynthia did it. Yeah. And he likes her and so he was trying to cover it up and I was like, dude. Tell me you got it bad. He would allow your mom to get murdered as long as it was Cynthia. So when he found the other coffee cup though, he was like, oh, it's good. That proves it's not Cynthia. And then there was a point where they're like, oh, it was Lawrence because Lawrence was alone in the dispensary and he put his fingers on the specific type of poison. I think it was strychnine. Yeah. It's strychnine that kills her because they were like, well, why would you go down to the store to buy strychnine? To kill Emily, of course. And so they arrest John at one point. I'm kind of a little all over the place because the book is a little all over the place. It is. I'm trying to just go by subplots here. So, yeah, like I said, at some point they arrest John because they're convinced he poisoned his mom but was trying to frame Alfred so that he would take the blame and wouldn't be in the will and he could have all the inheritance because apparently he owes money to people because he's spending like an idiot. Yeah. And that was another control measure was she would give them an allowance but a really strict allowance. Yeah, just enough to live on. But not enough to save up and go somewhere. Yes. So that's going on. And there's things like, oh, Alfred quote-unquote, went to the drugstore and bought the specific type of poisoning, claiming he was going to put down a dog, but they don't own a dog. And then Perot was like, haha, but actually that was a disguise to frame Alfred. And I think that was around the time that they arrested John. Mm-hmm. And this whole time, you think he thinks John did it. He really does. At least I thought he thought John did it. Yeah. And so at one point, he's like, oh, Hastings, I don't know whether or not I should speak the truth because a woman's heart is in the balance and he's like if they call me I will testify against John and you're like oh 
oh, he thinks he did it. Yeah. And then Hastings is also convinced that John did it, isn't he? I think because he's convinced that Hercule thinks he did it, that he did it. Yeah. So to get an into each of these characters, apparently the doctor... Okay, get this. <laughs> At one point, Perot goes to London and he comes back and the doctors are the suspects. And he's like, no, he's not guilty of murder, but he is guilty of being a spy. Guilty of espionage. Whoa. I did not see that. Kind of, I was like, what? He's a spy? Yeah. And apparently Perot thinks the doctor and Mary's friendship was a farce. Yeah. To make it seem like he had integrated himself into the village. Yeah. He was befriending her to seem like he was on the up and up. And Mary was befriending him to get back at John, who was sleeping with the farmer's wife as well. See, this is how you get syphilis, people. Yeah. Ugh. Wonder why it spread so easily. Now we know. Anyway. But apparently, Mary was actually in love with someone else. Immediately, Hastings like, is she in love with me? And I was like, is she in love with Lawrence? It's like, goodness, so many love mushes. I don't even know. By the end, it was, no, she loved her husband. She just needed something to remind her. Yeah, because John was sleeping with someone else. And she was like, I could do the same thing if I wanted to, but doesn't want to. Anyway, that's beside the point. That's messy junk. <laughs> At the end, they decide to give their marriage an honest go and whatever. Okay. Yeah. They seem like a really toxic couple, but cool. They really do. And so while the trial is going on, all of a sudden, all this evidence against Lawrence comes out. Oh, look, there's a box from the costume store addressed to L. Cavendish. Hmm, that's so weird. Why would he need costume stuff? Because, you know, he had to buy the beard from someone. Mm-hmm. And so around this time, Perot's like, I know what happened. I can't prove it, but I know what happened. And Hastings like, well, what is it? He's like, I'm not telling you. And so Hastings gets mad at Perot. Again. <laughs> Hastings is just easily upset. He's sensitive. Fragile masculinity. He's a sensitive boy. A little bit. He's very sensitive. And he doesn't like that Perot is not cluing him in on everything. But also he thinks he's smarter than Perot and then gets mad when Perot proves him wrong. Yes. He's like, I know everything. I don't know everything. <laughs> Why will you not tell me everything? Anyway. It just makes me wonder how many people were wrongly accused and imprisoned for stuff they didn't do back then. Oh my gosh. Okay. English courts of law. Around here, this time period, the police are pulling people in. But before that, I think Pride and Prejudice time, people would just drag people to court and be like, hey, they're guilty of a crime. Let's start the court now. Trial now. And we wonder how the Salem witch trials happened. If you really study how British courts were, you really understand why they felt it's so important to have the Fourth and Fifth Amendment. Yeah. A right to a speedy trial, right to a jury of their peers, depending on the case, of course. A right to be protected from unlawful search and seizure. So many things. Yeah. But yeah. So it used to be you could just straight up drag someone into court and be like, they're guilty of a crime. Prove you're innocent now. Well, you can't prove you're innocent. Such high quality lawship here. Really the best. And granted, a lot of times it isn't a detective novel and the person is the person who did it. But still, there are plenty of cases where that's not the case. So they find the costume with Lawrence. They find his fingerprints on the bottle. Hasting proposes to Cynthia. Oh my gosh. Thinking that she would marry him after knowing him for less than a week or two. He's obsessed with Mary and then proposes to Cynthia because she's sad. Because he's sad and she just laughs in his face. I'm like, that has to feel bad. Yeah, but he was being dumb. He was. Also, how old was Cynthia? It just says young. Yeah. 20s young? I think 
late 20s because she's working at a dispensary. Yeah. So she's had the schooling. And that takes some training. So the defense for John really tears into it could be Lawrence. But the prosecution is like, hey, he's sleeping with this dude's wife. A servant claims that they saw John knocking on Emily's door that night. Oh, and there's also, I heard the table crash from my room. Mary, yeah. Mary's like, oh, I heard the table crash from my room. And Perot's like, how? <laughs> no, you didn't. And runs a test. And yeah, no, she didn't. But then the prosecution reveals that the detectives found the costume glasses, like Alfred's, and the vial of poison were in John's things. They also found a blotting paper for the will, which left everything to Alfred. So that's the whole will nonsense. Even though the defense points out, hey, that was found a week later and in winter clothing, which he wouldn't be going through because it was summer and really hot. The hottest day of the year when it happened. So they're like, oh, it was planted and clearly Lawrence did it and he couldn't have been in the chemist shot because he was too busy being blackmailed even though no one saw him and he has a note but the prosecution's like anyone could have written that note. Ooh, I was alone in the woods by myself. Alibi. And throughout the whole thing, Perot's distraught how the case is going until Hastings reminds him that the case was forced open a second time. Oh yeah, the dispatch case. Yeah, it forced open. The key was lost. And then Perot's like, oh my goodness, and he immediately runs home. He runs out of the room. He's immediately yelling for a garage. And he's like, I need the car! And everyone's like, where is he going? So he pieces everything together and he explains. Emily made a second will in favor of her husband. She then found something in his desk. She opened his desk while looking for stamps. And she found the murder plot against her. Yeah, she found a letter with the murder plot. And so she burned the will and she's like, I'm going to talk to my lawyer tomorrow, which is always a terrible idea. Tell people now. Tell people immediately. Never wait. Don't wait until tomorrow. Waiting until tomorrow is how you get murdered. Yeah. So that's Emily's portion because she was murdered on Tuesday. So here's Mary's portion. Mary desperately wants the piece of paper that Emily has that she thinks has to do with her husband, but doesn't. It has to do with the murder plot. Mm-hmm. So she drugs both Emily's cocoa and Cynthia's coffee. Yes. And apparently the narcotic she used is what caused the delay reaction in Emily's poisoning. Mm-hmm. Which they were not expecting that, obviously. No. As someone who knows nothing about poison, I was like, yeah, sure, sounds great. <laughs> Which I will completely agree with, because like I said, Agatha Christie worked in a dispensary and knew quite a bit about poisoning at that point. So Mary goes through Cynthia's room into Emily's, and she's the one who stole the key to the dispatch case. Mm-hmm. So while in there, Emily starts having her episode, which freaks Mary out. She drops her candle, which is white. And that causes the wax on the floor. Yes. And so she rushes out and with no time to make it back to her wing, because she sleeps on the other side of the house. She wakes up Cynthia and acts like she was waking up Cynthia, who's a deep sleeper. And that's what she was doing this entire time. It's not that she was in Emily's room. No. No, not at all. So later on, she's freaking out. She's like, oh, crap, I gave her that narcotic. And what if that did poison her? And so she's the one who hid Cynthia's coffee cup, which is the one that Lawrence found later. And that was what was hinting 
alluding to, oh, Cynthia could have been the murderer. Did they not just have trash cans? Could she not have just hit it and then just thrown it out? I think she put it in a random vase, too. Yeah, okay. So that was part of it. So Mary was doing some suspicious stuff, but she thought it had to do with her husband's affair and wasn't trying to kill anybody. Yeah. So how was she poisoned? Since they figured out that the coffee had not been drunk, as it was thrown off of the table by the bad leg, which apparently the table has a bad leg. So it spilled on the floor. There's this coffee stain on the floor. And eventually the cup is on the table and it gets smashed. So coffee wasn't drunk. So that's not how they poisoned it. Yep. So get this. Every night, Emily takes a serum to sleep. And... Apparently, they had recently found that this specific strixine tonic, she was taking little bits of strixine every night to sleep, which just... Medicine back then was truly wild. Yeah, it sounds made up. Why? It's as ridiculous as taking x-rays to make sure your shoes fit. I just... (laughs) But not only did they do this, but apparently they used to add a little bit of bromide powder to it. Even better. Which causes the poison to separate from the tonic, and so all the poison is at the bottom because it's the heaviest apparently and so when you take your final sip you take a crap ton of poison I mean, that's one way to sleep really well. Oh my gosh. Forever. And so this was supposed to happen on Monday when the bell was broken, but she forgot to take it. So at this point, Pro, he's explaining this in a room with everyone because, you know, detective, that's what he does. And so he's like, plot twist. Evelyn and Alfred have been working together from the beginning. Evelyn wrote him, was like, hey, I have this idea. And Alfred, who is not as smart as Evelyn, was like, yeah, that sounds good. And so he goes and says, Induces Emily into marrying him. And then Emily is the one who's providing the serum to Emily every night. And so she's the one who knew about this and added the bromine powder so that she would poison herself with her serum. And then, okay, so here's the thing. This is where it gets extra convoluted, where it just gets very extra in my opinion. Yes. They wanted everyone to think it was Alfred because then they placed clues where it was like, hey, it wasn't Alfred. So apparently if they had charged him and gone through the crime and then been like, oh, he's innocent, he would have been scotch-free. Yeah. Which is why Hercule was like, no, you can't arrest him earlier in the book. Don't arrest him. And then later he's like, oh, it would make it seem like John did it because if he came away innocent, they would think it was Alfred because it wasn't the right time. If he hadn't figured it all out, who the accomplice was who went to the store, Alfred would get away with it because they wouldn't have enough evidence to make him guilty. Yes. So Evelyn was the one who went to the chemist in disguise because she was fired. And although working at I think a hospital nearby. She still had an off day where she was able to do that. And they were suspicious and sneaky. And she's the one who hid the stuff in different things. Then they pretended like they hated each other and she got herself fired. And ugh. I mean, pretty creative plan. Yeah, I thought it was Cynthia. And apparently Lawrence did too. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm on par with Lawrence. I thought it was Mary. Oh, so you're on par with, I think Hastings thought it was Mary. She was very suspicious for a while. Yeah. Until the pro was like, hey, this was her part. And I was like, oh. At first I thought it was Alfred. And then I was like, well, I don't know. And then I thought it was Mary. I never suspected the pairing they had. No, I did not. Because I kept forgetting who he he was second. 
second cousins, though. Oh, gosh, yeah. I forgot they were cousins. They mentioned it briefly in the beginning that he showed up. He's like, hey, I'm her cousin. And I just forgot. Oh, yeah. There's some little things that just get mentioned one time. And they mean something. That's why when in my recap, I'm like, oh, here's this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. Just read the book if you want everything. Cause it's a lot. I probably missed something in there. I think I got all of it. It's fine. So that is that. But kind of an interesting for the ending. So the ending is they're all in styles in a room and Hercules and like, oh, here's what happened. And Hercule goes on and is like, hey, blah, 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 blah. But originally she had written the chapter to be that Hercule told this to everybody at the trial. Oh, that would have been quite interesting. So she ended up changing it. Originally, Perot was going to give his final speech in a courtroom. Her editor thought it was unconvincing. This doesn't seem realistic. And so she changed it to have the scene in styles. And thus begin the famous detective trope. Yep. A little bit by accident. But, I mean, here we are. Clearly it was impactful. It was good. And people liked it. And it has been used forever and always. It's funny how things like that just happen unintentionally. Yeah. And there are so many things in this book started the Christieisms and other things. And it's, it's just kind of crazy to think it had to start. She had to sit down and write them for the first time before it became an ism, before she had 80 books. Without knowing how impactful it would be. Yeah, that's kind of crazy to think about. But at some point, it was a first. At some point, she had to put it from her brain onto a piece of paper and it could have been something as innocuous as her editor going, eh, I'm not convinced. Yeah. And then here we are a hundred years later and what a difference that has made. It'd be crazy how different the whole genre would be if she hadn't been an author. Oh my gosh. If her sister hadn't dared her to write a detective book, if she hadn't been able to sell her book to a publisher, if they hadn't taken a chance on her, even if it was predatory, if all of the choices she made if she hadn't worked at a dispensary, if she had had another job, there's so many butterfly effects. There really is. It's incredible sometimes looking at them and being like, wow. This had to happen once. This had to have a start. Everything had to line up perfectly for it to happen. Yeah. Because in a way you think it's like, oh, it's Agatha Christie. She knew what she was doing, blah, blah, blah. She might not have. Not at first. She's probably just figuring it out as she went. Yeah. Obviously she had to plan and be really smart about it, but those thoughts just randomly popped in her head one day and she was like, oh, write that down. Yeah, let's do that. That's so crazy to think about. The creative process is crazy, especially after it's been so romanticized. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just become lore, and it's just crazy to actually think about the mechanics of it, and she had to sit there and write every single word and think of them, and they didn't just one day appear on a page, and Agatha sat on her throne of books. Yeah, it's a long process. Yeah, it took time, and it took her, I want to say, two years to write this book? That makes sense. There's, like, so much included in it. Yeah. And she had to do so much planning and rewriting because no one publishes their first draft unless you're an idiot. No. So it's crazy. So this was the beginning. General thoughts that I've been spewing at the same time. I will be honest, and some of the phrases of this book had me cackling. (laughs) Wilkins knocked Denby up to tell him. Yeah. Wilkins knocked on the door to tell Denby. (laughs) Oh, how times have changed. Why 
Miles T himself made a careful and deliberate toilet. I'm pretty sure that still means the same thing, but the way it's phrased. This last one that you wrote down got me. I am still just a middle schooler on the inside. <laughs> it means a different thing than we think of, but we have been so perverted. Yes to its other definition but and finally uttering an ejaculation of satisfaction oh my gosh it was not a sex scene i swear i would have put that on the content warning once again i want to know how many takes did it take this poor narrator on some of these they probably weren't had a 12 year old brain they were probably fine they're professional it's fine but yeah some of the phrases <laughs> Truly astounding. That is not what that means in 2022 America. No, it is not. But that's also how I feel when they talk about the psychology. The psychology. Yeah. So one question for the author, and I think you had the same question. Yeah, I did. If at the end of her career, if she looked back, would she do it all again? At the end, when she hated Hercule Poirot and was glad he was dead and was looking at all of these movies made and hating them, but also she was still writing and it afforded her a wonderful lifestyle where she could travel and meet people and express herself and be appreciated, taking the goods and the bads into consideration, would she do it all again. I would want to know what would she do differently. Yeah. Is there anything that if she did it again, would she take that same contract? Would she kill Hercule earlier? Would she make a whole different character? Would she never make Hercule Perot in the first place? Yeah. But then again, how successful would the book have been without him? Yeah, it's a lot of little things. So would she have taken that chance? Would that have provided her more happiness, potentially? I would love to know. If I can ever travel back in time. And have lunch with someone. It would be very interesting to know. So you'd probably be like, why are you asking so many questions? If I could get together Agatha Christie and Lillian Jackson Braun and the woman who started writing the Nancy Drew series. Oh, yeah. I don't remember her name. On the books, it's Carolyn Keene, which is just a ghostwriter tab. Mm, Mildred Benson. I wonder what conversation that would be. That's a 1920s, a 1930s, and a 1960s writer. Two of them are American. One of them's English. Lots of strong personalities. I can't actually imagine it going like a super well conversation, but I think it would be interesting if those three together. But yeah, that would be my three I would bring together because I love all three of those series. I don't know who I would bring. I would kind of want to throw Tolkien in there, too. You want to throw in a random fantasy writer? Three mystery women and a fantasy male. Well, if I had to do all at the same time, no. But if I could have separate conversations. Oh, okay. You would want to talk to Tolkien. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Because, like, why would you throw it in randomly with him? Oh, that would be a hot mess. No, I don't think that would be as good. <laughs> no, not at all. So rating. I would give this the first boss battle out of 10. We got some more going on and that sure later ones could be more challenging or more intricate, but you remember the first. Oh, yeah. Whatever game you're playing, you do not forget what the first one is. Not at all. That's kind of how our memories work. We remember first and ends. Yep. Mine is a pun. Of course, no one is surprised. And I had to look up how the poison was spelled but now that i know i can do it it's a strict nine out of ten. Oh gosh no <laughs> we're done <laughs> 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 
forget the rest of this. No outro. We're done. Pack it up. I'm sorry I had to. This is too good to pass up. Good is a relative term. I'm sure there's going to be lots of grief in the comments about it. It's fine. <laughs> oh, come on. You know that wasn't the worst pun I've come up with. That wasn't the worst pun. Oh, wow. Is this the levels? <laughs> it's not the worst. Come on. This isn't the terrible. It is not actual garbage. If you had to pick this in a landfill, come on. It would be a little bit shinier than the rest. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that was the last time she was ever invited back. <laughs> and the series died. Read again. I'd read this book again. Oh yeah. I don't think I've read one of hers where I'm like, I would not read this again. I would. All of them, you read it or listen to it. Again, you pick up on things. Yeah. Little things you didn't notice. Like I was looking through my notes and I was like, oh, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Yeah. It's sort of having the hindsight of knowing what happens. Yeah. Because Perot's really good about summations, but there's still little things. You're like, oh, I took that for granted. Or I took that at face value. Yeah, exactly. So yes, I love it. Favorite of the series so far. Alright, so you have three books now. Uh-huh. I would say this one. I agree with what you said about, or what you're going to say. I'm reading the notes. Rude. About murder and death on the Nile. Plus, death on the Nile is just, there's so much preliminary detail that I was just like, oh my gosh, can we get to the murder, please? Yeah, it's, yeah. So my nose that she's referencing rude, by the way. <laughs> I would say either this one or Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which you will read eventually and understand. Yes. There's just more investigation than there is on Murder on Orient Express, because like we said in that episode, it's a lot of, let's talk to everybody. All right, let's talk to everybody again. All right, let's talk to everybody again. For like, the entire chapter is talking to one person. Which I don't mind, but I prefer when he actually investigates. Yeah, it's interesting seeing how he investigate stuff. He just has so much energy, man. He does. For a 65-year-old man. Yeah, I'm like, how do you have so much more energy than I do? Running around the streets screaming for a car. <laughs> They're probably like, what is wrong with this man? And then, it, yeah, frankly, it's more interesting than Death on the Nile. Once again, good mystery happens halfway through the book. Yes. It's unfortunate. Not bad. Not a dud. Just kind of Melly's favorite. And of course, they pick that one for the movie. Of course, yeah. They couldn't pick anything else. Had to be that one. I stand by the 70s movie. The 70s Death on the Nile I think is the best. I need to watch that one. It's very good. I tried really hard to simplify it but if you have not read the book it might not make as much sense. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really enjoy Agatha Christie. It's a good book. I stand by it. It's 12 chapters and I think like 200 something pages. I do appreciate that most of her books are on the shorter side. Yes. Compared to newer books where you're like why am I reading 700 pages of world building? fantasy which we have to get back to that series at some point <laughs> yeah thank you for exploring a mysterious affair at styles with us i'm sam reiner and i'm hannah rossell and we hope to see you and a friend here next time escape with me book club is a lunar scope production check us out on tiktok or instagram to keep up to date with us lunar underscore s-k-u-l-k